Thank you very much. This morning, it's our honor to study God's word. As I uh, wait here, we'll um, read the first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and then um, pray and we'll begin. First, I want to greet everyone and thank God that you are here together with each other and looking to worship God and understand his word. Let me read the first two verses, which will be on the slide here, and then we'll pray and I'll lay out what we're going to do today. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 from the ESV. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not spiritual food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. Let's pray. Dear Lord, help us to understand what you have said, understand your word, and not be confused by things that we've been taught that are not true. Help us to see the context, help us see our need, and also help us to grow in your grace and faith and um, more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. When I began the study some weeks ago and doing the exegetical work for the, these two verses, I intended to preach 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. But the more I studied and the more the text that I looked at from the Greek and elsewhere in scholarly material, I realized that the big problem in church history has been the misunderstanding of the first two verses. And so I entitled this sermon, The Irony of Fleshly Spirituality. Now, why irony? The reason we need to understand these verses is that when Paul says something ironically, or anyone says something ironic uh, in nature, and then we take it literally, what we end up hearing is the opposite of what was said. And this happens in ordinary speech every day. It happened this morning. Someone mentioned something to me, and I realized they were saying it was ironic. We might say, well, I'm sure glad that it's 14 degrees today in March. And, uh, well, we would know because we're here at the same spot that that's ironic. Because typically it would be 20 degrees warmer than this. But when different people gather throughout church history, even at the very beginning while the apostles were still alive, Paul was the one who spent a year and a half in Corinth, even then when people from different backgrounds, cultures, and what have you become Christian, you have to be careful when you use irony because somebody might take it literally. And some of you and all of us probably know somebody who always uses irony with, with a few exceptions, and then you have to wait a second before you laugh or cry. Because if somebody expects you to be aghast, and when they say something, they're saying it ironically, you get it wrong. Here's what I'm going to do with this sermon. And these, this, this, these two verses, and then next week we'll go to verses 3 and 4. I want to show you 
from the context and then from some people who helped me with a scholarly understanding of this, that Paul's irony is not suggesting what most of church history has taken to be the case, that Paul only gave them milk because they weren't advanced enough and they really could only handle the basics and therefore that's what we need to learn how to do. But if it's ironic, then we get a totally different perspective and understanding of what's said. So with that said, let's pay attention, look at the scripture, and you can decide whether uh, I'm making a solid case that this is ironic. So the text says brothers. First thing we need to know, who's addressed? Are these people who know Christ, who are born of God, and who have believed in Christ and accepted the message of Christ crucified, welcome that, and they are the Lord's people. I would say from the context that that's true. They are the Lord's people, and we want to go back to what I covered earlier in 1 Corinthians 2.14 to prove that. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, I'll read that to you. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, the sermon that was preached on that on February 20th, 2022, we went through that, and so you can find that on the website, and you can determine whether that was a valid reading of 1 Corinthians 2.14. And there... We showed that the person who is only of this world, not been one who received the message of Christ crucified, who rejected the cross, who rejected the message of, of the crucified Jewish Messiah, and that would be Jews and Gentiles who were offended by it, would be the person who would not welcome anything that's from God, or from the Spirit of God. Now, in we'll show that in this case, they had received the message, the ones who are part of the church. So they're not in the same category as the ones who reject Christ, reject the gospel, and will not hear what God said and went to look for something else in the pagan religions or go back only to uh, temple Judaism and reject that Jesus Christ died for sins once for all. And... Why is Paul using irony here? We'll see that as we do the preview for next week, week, which is schisms. They were saying, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ, and I'm of Apollos. They thought that there were various messages and that they would be better Christians if they followed someone they liked with a different approach or so they thought. Paul, you're not very spiritual. We don't like you. Apollos, you're more eloquent. We like you. And we'll see that more next week. The fact is that the thing that attacks the sufficiency of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of the gospel, is status honor conveyed by people in churches, leaders and otherwise, 
who would divide Christ and say, whoever has the biggest uh, following, whoever looks the best, speaks the best, sounds the best, that must be who I follow. And many times it leads to messages that are not compatible with Christ crucified. And better to hear the truth from someone who doesn't seem so impressive than to hear lies from an eloquent false teacher. And so Paul rightly is seeing, he's the apostle, of course he's right, that they are going astray by their being enamored with honor and status based on things that are not gospel-centric. Because it said that, it says that as we go forward in verse 4. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. So let's do a review here of um, 1 Corinthians one eighteen. if you want to turn to that. I limited the number of slides to make sure we cover this properly. So if you could turn to 1 Corinthians one eighteen. I'll read that and consider this one. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So if indeed those who are the soulish or natural, natural man in 1 Corinthians 2.14, considered a message of the cross foolish, they're not Christian. They never, they wouldn't listen to it. They left long ago or they went to hear somebody else or went back to the pagan deities or went back to something else, but they rejected Christ. So this isn't about people who never knew the Lord, who don't know the Lord, but it's irony to wake up people who are starting to think the old way in worldly manners. Because if you believe the cross and the truth of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, who he is, what he did, why we need him, and why we need to flee from the wrath to come, then you've believed in Christ. It also says, and I'll just cite this, 1 Corinthians 3.19, the wisdom of the world is foolishness, with God. So the natural man who considered the message of Christ crucified foolishness is not a Christian. And Paul would not address such persons as brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers is generic here, means brothers and sisters, as we often say today. And I have this a lot of translations translate anthropos this way, and it's or Adelphoi, actually, Adelphoi, excuse me. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about Anthropos next week. Brothers and sisters, brethren. Now, let's go. We're going to go to verse 1 only here and break out some of the ideas. I've highlighted some things with green and red. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, I've given you the Greek words, I'll pronounce, they're, they're transliterated, and I'll explain why we need to know what's, what these are about. Spiritual here would be, it's a plural, 
pneumaticoids, those are of the spirit, of the flesh, sarcanoids, the word pneuma, by the way, spirit, sarx is flesh, and then the infants, napinoids, <laughs> so those are the words. But there are play on words going on here, and each of these are given as an ironic rebuke. And it would not be a good way to find favor with that congregation by saying, well, you're a bunch of fleshly babies. I didn't say that. Oh, I said that, didn't I? But that's not what I'm saying here. I'm warning us. And so was Paul. I don't want to be a fleshly baby. I want to learn what God said. And if what God said is what will cause any of us, including me as a Christian, to see the light and get straightened out, God will use that. And it will have the same effect today. Their thinking and behavior was like those without the spirit, as, which is a, telling us he's making a comparison here, as people without the Spirit. But if they did not have the Spirit, were not born of God, they're not Christians. The brothers and sisters, the brethren, are Christians. And they're thinking and behaving as if they were not. How did that happen? Well, I'm going to cite more scholarly sources than I normally do, and here's why. For 10 years of my Christian life, from when I was born of God in 1971 until the early 80s, I was facing the choice of going with the scholarship, trying to understand the best I can, staying in the scripture, or pursuing what I would now call pietism. In other words, how can I be a better Christian than the ones I typically see around? And the version of pietism that was offered in the group that I joined suggested that the entire world was Babylon, the churches are spiritual Babylon, the businesses are economic Babylon, and basically Babylon was taking over. And to get out of Babylon, you had to give away, sell your houses, join this group, and be spiritual. And it wasn't all bad. Our daughter Jessica was with us when we moved there, very young. And our son was born there, and we met, met some great people. But when some things went astray, I wondered, because now doing research, I realized that the different streams that were out there, from Finney to Watchman Nee, to, I, I didn't know that the founder of the group had come from a place that believed in Finney, who believed in human ability. Nee believed that the soulish Christians are the ones that don't know how to understand the difference between the soul and the spirit, which is hard to figure out anyhow. And what was wrong? Why was 10 years spent trying to be spiritual and realizing I'm like everybody else in that one thing I have is Christ and forgiveness of sins and the word of God. And to my shame, honestly, I had to think, 
This movement came and was discredited. This movement came and was discredited. This preacher came and was discredited. This one came and was discredited. And this happened and that happened. What can we do so that we aren't unstable and we're not wondering what went wrong? The only thing I could think of was just teach the Bible. And if something is wrong, it's because I don't understand it. Because God cannot lie. Everything God says and does is for our benefit. And if I understand the truth, God will use that and... It will be better for me, for my family, for any people that I might minister to. So that's why the scholar's here. Here's what uh, Gordon Fee, and I cite him first because his commentary in 1987 finally helped me see what I had gotten wrong for those 10 years. Dr. Gordon Fee said this, Paul makes a frontal attack and pronounces the Christians, excuse me, the Corinthians as not nomadicoi, spirit people at all. Indeed, says Fee, not only are they not living as people of the spirit, they are just the opposite. They are fleshly, still thinking like mere human beings. Those who do not have the spirit. With this charge, Fee says, Paul exposed himself to centuries of misunderstanding. But his concern is singular, not to suggest classes of Christians or grades of spirituality, but to get the Corinthian believers to stop thinking like the people of this present age who are governed by concerns, says he, that lie outside God's kingdom. Now, I'm going to stop right there. And I'm going to make my own comment. Why is that important? Because they were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm a better Christian, I have a better person I'm following, I have a better person that I'd rather listen to. And ultimately, Second Corinthians, they said, Paul, you're unimpressive. Your personal presence is weak. But it doesn't matter how um, charming or winsome the preacher is, what matters is what is the message. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from serving self, sin, the world, religion, all of that, which we wanted to do. That's why we got out of Babylon. It turned out Babylon could have followed us on in. But uh, that's the problem, by the way, with uh, those type of groups. But the fact is, if someone will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace and be redeemed and born of God and part of the family of God, that's not someone who's now a lesser Christian. That's a person who's part of the family of God. And who's greatest and who's least, and I'll talk about this next week, is only determined by God, we can see who is preaching the truth and fruits that develop by God's grace. But we try to, too often, all of us make judgments that we're not qualified to make. Why? Because we've already seen that in chapter 4. Let me make the statement that I wrote here 
says brothers, vocative. So it's this personal statement. It's vocative in the Greek. It says brothers, vocative, which is a delphoi, means the whole church, brothers and sisters. Paul sees the people who had trusted Christ alone and did have the Holy Spirit thinking and behaving as if they were still in the world. Therefore, this is ironic, that's my statement, not literal. The evidence for their need to change will be covered in verses 3 and 4. Divisions and schisms. These are based on false judgment. And so that's when he's talking to the church, he says, brothers, the Delphoi. Another person, no, Dr. Gardner, another commentary, I'll say this much from him. This apparent desire to divide into groups of the spiritual, says Gardner, and those who are not is something Paul will not tolerate. And so, in a blunt opening salvo, Gardner says, he now speaks to those who consider themselves spiritually superior to others. This attack becomes even more explicit in 4.8. I've, I've covered that in a preview. Gardner continues. He tells them that whatever they may think about their superior status in the community, he could not talk to them as spiritual people. Why? Because they won't listen like they should. Okay? That's my statement. So there are actually... Um, my life really changed as far as understanding First Corinthians when I got that commentary in 1987. And now four or five of them realize that is the reading. See, what's authoritative? Isn't some person with ecclesiastical authority saying, you listen to whatever I say, and that's the only way you're going to hear from God. What's authoritative is Scripture alone. And if we can understand the context of what's being said, it will change us because the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. Luther was right about this. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. And as we understand what is true and what God said, it will change us because God will bring us forward by his grace. Now let's go to 2A, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 3, 2A. Now, we're looking at the next verse, the first part of it. I fed you with milk, not solid food, or you're not ready for it. Again, we've got to get this right. It's irony. It's irony. Yes, there are people who are new Christians. Yes, there are people who have been Christians for many years. There are Christians who have grown. But exactly where we're at vis-a-vis what God's intent is, only God knows, but we know the means. So the milk, so here's what I got wrong. When I first thought about this, believing that I was a sinner and I needed Christ, and that if I didn't turn to Christ, then I knew I was lost, That was the milk, so I thought. Now, the the solid food is something else, so I thought. The solid food is disconnected 
from the sort of interesting starting point. The solid food is whatever somebody figured out by a clever reading of some verses at the expense of others, and that's what you try to do, the something else. But the, the something else eventually leads to a de-emphasis of the person of Christ, the reason we're even part of the family of God, what God did, and glorifying Christ and trusting him alone. Eh, that's kind of interesting, but there's all these other things we could be teaching on. And it, it, there are so many versions of it. It could be inner healing. It could be casting out demons. It could be how to fix any problem that might arise. And certainly we have wisdom, but wherever we go that's not rooted and grounded in Christ and his word is not heading toward more solid food. It's a diversion. It's not progress. Now, another scholar to show that when I finally saw the irony here, by the way, some of the teachers I used to follow emphasize 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, and that's where they find their proof text, but they misinterpret them. So Dr. Garland, that's another scholar I want to quote right here, because this reading is so well attested that it's hard to justify some of the other readings that people use to promote their ideas. Dr. Garland, 2003, Paul's argument here is not that his initial instruction in the gospel, milk, proclaimed the cross and the Corinthians' immaturity prevented him from moving to more extensive, advanced education. Garland says, I argue above that the wisdom he speaks among the mature is exactly the same message as the word of the cross he preached when he first came to Corinth. He does not divide Christians into lower-level beginners who need to be fed a diet of theological pablums, says Garland, an upper-level elite who can receive advanced esoteric meaning, designed to be, that means designed to be understood only by the few, Doctrine as if Christianity were like pagan mysteries. That's what people like. Steps to success, higher order, secret teachings. So many of the mystery cults are only revealing things as you pay more and do more and you get advanced. So that's my comment, but Garland pointed out that's not the case. Back to Garland, nor does he offer two-stage wisdom leading believers to the next stage of more arcane lessons when he thinks they can handle it. In 15, 3 through 7, that's the gospel. He says he reminds them that he delivered to them as of first importance. Okay, First importance, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And I agree with Garland who says there's no greater Christian truth beyond this message. Where he asks as a question, is there a greater truth than Christ crucified? The promise of God. I say no. No. That was the message that caused me to totally go a different direction. It's not a sin to be a chemical engineer, but God stopped me in my tracks because I was hostile to God and 
going nothing but problems for anybody around me. Let me just review something else. I'll read it to you for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. This is review. Notice what he said. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come, same address to the same people, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is not apologizing about Jesus Christ and him crucified, calling that the milk. Now we get the meat. What's the meat? Well, it's always something else. It has nothing to do with Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, it's not enough. There's a deeper spirituality, a higher order. Does that make sense? Just ponder it. Does it mean that the values and truths and the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation is not so profound that we can spend this entire life and not totally know everything? But what it does mean is that once we're not connected to the groundwork that God has laid, wherever we go is not biblical. Now let's go to the last part of this verse, and we'll go to some applications. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, 2b. Even now you're not yet ready. So why are they not yet ready now? Verses 3 and 4. There's a preview, schisms. So what was the review? Verse 12 of chapter 1. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And anyone who embraces the truth of the gospel is converted by the grace of God and hungers and thirsts after righteousness will be filled by the same means that God's always provided. Means of grace. They're accessible to all who believe. By growth, we are fed with spiritual food and we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And how disrespectful to consider the message of the cross, milk, ho, ho, hum, tell me something else. That's sad. It's sad. I'll cite Dr. Fee again. However... By considering Paul's teaching as milk for babies, they show that they themselves are mere infants. They've abandoned the gospel for something that may look like solid food, but is altogether without nutritional value. That doesn't mean they renounced the gospel or left it, but what they're looking for is not going to lead anywhere good. He's appealing appealing to them, uh, that's my comments. Back to what Dr. Fee said. Paul allows that they are indeed in Christ because they are believers, after all. His concern, however, is not that they progress into deeper teaching from the rudimentary, but that they abandon their present childish behavior altogether so that they may appreciate the milk for what it is, 
solid food. That, when I read that in 1988 or 89, it blew me away. Wow. Why did it take all these years to realize I have in Christ the assurance of the forgiveness of sins, promises that he's given that he will bring us all the way to glory, escape from the wrath of God through the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. And I hope that by preaching this now, I can help others not fall into the same trap. He continues. That means, first he talked about the thinking. That means, second, that the images of milk and solid food must also be understood in light of this antithesis. The preceding argument, 2, 6 or 16, implies that for Paul, the gospel of the crucified one is both milk and solid food. That's feed. As milk, it is good news of salvation. As solid food, it is understanding, says he, that the entire Christian life is predicated on the same reality. That those who have the Spirit should so understand the mystery that they must live a cruciform, that means based on crucified Messiah, as live, live cruciform as people whose lives and values are shaped by the crucifixion. Thus, the Corinthians do not need a change in diet, but a change in perspective. When we depart from the foundation, we're not going anywhere good. And if we think that the only thing Christianity is for is a nicer place to live, until we die or a nicer situation or better things we miss the point that's my statement why do we know this was the problem they were saying I am of Paul I am of Apollos I am of Cephas I am of Christ all we need to know is Christ is not divided. Yes. And as I've met people, first in Bible college, I had great teachers who warned me. They saw how I was thinking. And I didn't listen. But by God's grace, when this made sense, I called them, wrote them. <laughs> I said, thank you for telling me the truth, and I regret I didn't listen. I Several teachers I called and said that. And then when I ended up at seminary, by God's providence, there were some really good teachers to reinforce how we can study the Bible. Let's go to some applications. We must not take ironic statements in the Bible literally. Now, that should be obvious 
But when you are dealing with a different time in history, different cultures and different perspectives in, in the world, you don't immediately know what's ironic. Okay? So we need to look at the text to find out when it is. Here we have irony. Christians need to be reminded of God's promises and means of growth. And we're going to do that today. The preaching of Christ is spiritual food for our hope and maturity. I hope to show that from some other scriptures, including going back as they're doing a review in 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. So if we go to the, that next slide, 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, it says here, uh, this is from earlier in Corinthians, who will also conform you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord, Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now think about that. If Paul wrote to this church where he had spent a year and a half of ministry and promised them at the beginning of the letter that Christ, whom they believed, Christ crucified, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is taught in every sermon in the book of Acts. will conform you to the end, blameless day of our Lord. He is not uh, writing to give them the bad news that they're not going to get there. He's ironically rebuking them with the intent that they'll snap out of their confused thinking and realize that whether it was Apollos or Paul that led them to the truth of Christ, how they got there is, is the, not so important as far as the personalities but that they came to Christ, and he will get you to the end. And we need to stay planted and firm in Christ. And that's always where it goes astray. See, human beings want works. Works has been the religion of fallen man since the beginning, all the way since the fall. Works. What can I do? And if you want people to really get excited, give them lots of steps. Five steps to solving your uh, emotional problems. Ten steps to solving your financial problem. Twelve steps to solving your religious problem. Forty days of purpose. Oh, I wrote a book about that, didn't I? It's no longer published, so I can't make money off of it. But think about it. Take an oath to spend the next 40 Days, finding your purpose. Now, why would that be appealing and sell a lot of books? Because we like to take O's. We, ought, we like to say, I'm going to do this. And then show up and do it. But it turns out that what you don't end up with is forgiveness of sins. And poorly translated Bible verses. So why... All of these people wanting to find purpose. Because it sounds fun. But if you are brought in 
not by works, but the fellowship that we're called in through the call of the gospel, through Jesus Christ, by God's grace, we have assurance at that point. As we preached recently, the thief on the cross didn't have time to do all the works. Today you'll be with me in paradise, he was told. Isn't that great? You think that if God left it up to you and you had enough steps and enough options to try harder and do more, eventually you'll be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus. Do you believe that? I hope not, because that would be so hopeless. Because one thing that's universal, the universal experience of fallen man is the fall is real. We're sinners. Peter says the same thing. If you want to turn here, 1 Peter 2, 1. 1 Peter 2, 1, I'll read verses 1 through 3. I want to show that really saying I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus, I'm a Peter doesn't really work because Peter taught the same thing. Because he shows this as an analogy. And it's not about laying aside the salvation that we have. So, 1 Peter 2, 1 or 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, look at that carefully in your Bibles. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, how could that be true? He's not just talking about common grace. Everybody tastes the kindness of the Lord. If they wake up and they breathe the air and the sun comes up and some days you can even see it and the grass eventually turns green. I see some out there. It's not green yet, but I see grass. Uh, That's common grace. But the kindness of the Lord is Christ crucified the forgiveness of sins. And God will keep us there. So when he says the pure milk of the word, he's not saying, Peter's not saying, the word is for the little babies. But if you want the meat, you go to somebody's seminar. It's really not that biblical. So you can't find a different message by deciding which apostle you like better. They're all preaching the same gospel. So this is an analogy. And the Greek would indicate we have a comparative conjunction like we had in these other verses, like newborn babies. Does it mean perpetual infancy? One more citation, another gardener again. Um, Back to this analogy in 1 Corinthians 3, 2. However, Paul's milk and food are used in a particular way here, says Gardner. He has laid out very clearly his gospel in the opening chapter. It centers on Christ crucified. This is the very wisdom of God. Since in every sense this is solid food, life commitment to this message could hardly be called a commitment to milk. Oh, you poor babies, all you want is milk. No, the milk is the word of God. That's the analogy. And if you ever get too spiritual for the word of God, you probably joined a cult. They're out there everywhere. 
another testament of Jesus Christ. Which one is that? Well, not the one in the Bible. The once for alls are important. Let's look at some promises. This was mentioned in Sunday school. I see Ephesians 4, 12 to 13. Bible does tell us to believe the promises of God. But if we believe promises that God did not give, we can't expect that God honor such promises. He didn't give them. Some preacher did. The apostles all preached the same message. But some will say, well, I have a better way to do this. Let's look at Ephesians 4. In fact, if you want to turn it there all the way to verse 11, we'll go through 11, 12, 13, and 14. See where this is going. I'll give you a moment to turn there. I'll start with verse 11. Ephesians 4, 11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Then we go to verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The next verse, verse 14. What's the result of what's been given, what's for all? Christ the cornerstone, apostles and prophets, foundation, the biblical ones, and then the ministries that are still going on. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness of deceitful scheming. So here we know that the trickery, the craftiness, the scheming, the side lies, the false Christ, the false religion, the false teachings are going to be there. And children are those who are rooted and grounded in faith and believe the promises of God. And don't get sidelined by what's not from God. And so God's means are not mystery teachings, secrets revealed to some latter-day prophet or apostle, some other version, but the word of God and the promises therein will bring us fully to glory. And God is working even now as we grow up in Christ. And by suggesting that all you're getting is milk of somebody, you know what, let me just make a comment about that. I've talked to a lot of preachers and asked them, preach Christ. And that's going to be our last slide. Preach Christ. And here's what that looks like. Preaching Christ means who he is, what he did, why we need him, and what he expects of us. Why do we need him? Because we face the wrath of God. And if we, there are so many Christs in the world, simply means anointed ones. The Christ is the true anointed one, the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament the one looked forward to all the way from Genesis, the one who came into history and died for sins, the one who gives us these promises. 
And you know what happens sometimes? It's a good thing to do to ask preachers to preach Christ. That doesn't mean it's the only topic we ever cover, but it's all grounded in Christ. Sometimes they say, so there's some evangelists that we said that to one time, and they, they were taking down notes because they wanted to get it right. That's a, good, that's a good thing. But others will just glaze over. Well, they don't say they won't do it, but then they don't. What do I mean by that? Well, we believe in Christ, but that's not, people are not looking for all that. They're not worried about hell. They want to find something else. They want to, or some will not do it at all. They have a false Christ. They think we're on this stairway to heaven and we don't need the Christ of the Bible and the substitutionary atonement. So here's the challenge. Are we going to progress in the Christian life to glory, not tossed around by winds of doctrine, by departing from the foundation of Christ crucified, who's the one who's coming again for us? And the answer is no, we won't. We'll be deceived. Last slide. Colossians 127b through 29. Colossians also, written by Paul, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, Paul says, I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The group that I joined with our family, 1975, had that for the slogan, presenting every person complete in Christ. I thought of that. But how would that happen? Regression therapy, uh, although it wasn't called that, Whatever's wrong with you is because of something that happened. Casting out demons from Christians, breaking curses, doing this, doing that, getting things that had nothing to do with the gospel. And that's not what we did. Does that make sense? If Paul believed that you needed something different to be complete, then Christ and the means he's provided, why isn't it in the Bible? People find it there, but they misuse the text. Let me have you look at one more verse, as we have here. Just a tiny bit of time. 2 John 9. I'll read it to you, but take note of it. 2 John 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. What kind of deeper life, higher life, perfect life, uh, healed life, inner healing life, demon-free life, whatever they promise you leads to don't have God? What good is it going to do you? If you don't have God, you're lost. How far is too far? Anything that leads away from abiding, staying put in the teaching of Christ. 
the one who abides in the teaching as both the Father and the Son. And that should stun all of us. It does me. Humbles us. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ existed before as part of this God the Son, the triune God of the Bible, created the entire universe out of nothing. The universe is decaying. If the universe was infinitely old, it would not be here now because it would have died of heat death. Second law of thermodynamics. I learned that before I became a Christian. And so God didn't emerge from the universe. He created it. If your Christ emerged from the universe, you have the wrong Christ. Furthermore, the creator who created the entire universe out of nothing, God, the Son, came into our world. You can consult John 1, 1 through 18 and other passages. He uniquely did things that no one else could do or has done. Only Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, predicted his own death and burial and resurrection on the third day, who bodily ascended into heaven before witnesses, who sits at the right hand of God, according to Psalm 110, verse 1, cited often, and is coming again to bring salvation for those who trust him and judgment for those who reject him. That's unique. How do you know him? Because we are lost, we're sinners, we're facing God's wrath. We turn away from serving self, Satan, religion, the world, anything else, and trust Christ on his terms. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be rescued from the wrath to come. Not just given a better life, but rescued. So and so as a noun means to rescue from serious peril. Is there any greater peril than to be eternally lost? The rescue comes from Christ alone. Today, the gospel is repent, turn to Christ, and trust in him. And doing so is what this is all about, preaching Christ. So, uh, let's... Think about that here as I pray and ask that the Lord would do a mighty work in the hearts of many people. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, and grace. Thank you that you have, in your wisdom and power, brought unworthy people into your kingdom through your means. And, Lord, if there's any here who have not yet Turn to you, may today be the day of salvation. Many may hear this later or even now. Today is the day of salvation. And help us understand that we must abide, stay put. We thank you, Lord, that you provided means of grace, including remembering your death until you come. We thank you that we have the opportunity to do that today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, some have asked who is welcome, and the fact is that the Lord's Supper is for anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
you're trusting him and you believe in him, the Lord has provided a reminder and a promise. And the words of institution will show us that, but let me just explain it. What are we reminded of in the Lord's Supper? The Lord instituted his supper, didn't he? Do this in remembrance of me. And that his shed blood paid the penalty for sin once for all. When we talk about until he comes, we're believing that he will indeed come again, as is promised in the Bible. So we're remembering, we're looking forward, and we're thanking God that he gave means for us to participate. Let me read the words of institution. They're also on the screen. Paul wrote this also to the Corinthians, for I received from the Lord that which, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in which the night you betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, as often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as you, the others, ushers, um, come and release you by row, we invite you to come as there's a song. It's being played for us in song. <laughs> 